Welcome to a special episode of Beyond Zero. I'm yours, Ben. Joining me today is writer Jen Craig and Seth from Waste Mailing List. On this episode, we discuss Melina by Ingeborg Bachmann. On tonight's program, we're discussing Melina by Ingeborg Bachmann. I'm joined by writer Jen Craig. Hi. Hi, Ben. And Seth from Waste Mailing List. Good to be here, Ben. Jenna, what is that with you? How's your weekend going in the lovely Blue Mountains? It's been it's been really lovely. Yeah, warm, unusually warm, strangely warm, <laughs> but um, beautiful too. Yeah, awesome. And how's life in Sydney, Seth? You know what? It's my weekend. Life is grand over here. A mate of mine just roasted a new batch of coffee, which I'm trying. I'm not convinced he hasn't laced it with cocaine. It is that good. So (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, it's been a pretty top tier weekend. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, we're here to talk about the wonderful book, Milena. I'd not heard of it until people I loved started to mention it on this podcast. And I finally got around to reading it in the last couple of months. And it blew me away. So my first question for both of you, I'll start with you, Jen, is how did you discover this novel and what inspired you to read it the first time? Ah, yes. I think I just heard about it. I guess in the way that you have talked about that, Ben, hearing people mention the book or mention the author. And I think it was more hearing people talk about Ingeborg Bachmann and my um friend Flowerville I think she often writes or extracts pieces from Gilbert Bachman so I was sort of always there at the back of back of my mind and I just I just it it was um going to a a bookshop a really good bookshop um in Sydney I can't remember where it was just one of those bookshops that are filled teeming with books that I just ended up just seeing it and a whole lot of other books and I just thought I want that one I want that one so mm-hmm. it was it was just like the sub my subconscious speaking to me you have to have that and so <laughs> all good books have come to me that way just arriving seeming to be the right word the right book yeah I've got a confession to make about this book that I told you guys beforehand but when I heard about this book and I didn't google it and I didn't look it up and um didn't buy it at the time but uh I assumed that Milena was the name of the female protagonist of this book, which, of course, we'll discuss later, but we, of course, find out that it's not. Um, but, Seth, how did you find out about this book? Uh, anticlimactic answer. I don't remember where I first heard of it. I can tell you how I came to it recently. I know it's been name-dropped a number of times on your show. Various people who have come on have mentioned it. And Twitter tends to get a buzz with it every once in a while. I'm sure, you know, Ryan Ruby, Merv Emery, the usual suspects have mentioned it in some capacity. Anyway, maybe two years ago, I was in a local bookshop in Sydney, and I saw it on the shelf and I read the Rachel Kushner introduction and I went, yeah, okay, I'm sold. So I picked it up and then I let it collect dust on my shelf for about a year and a half. And then just a couple months ago, I was reading The Water Statues by Fleur Yegi. And that novella is dedicated to Ingborg. And there are a number of things inside that book that I think are well, novella, I should say, that are inexorably interlinked. 
with Melina. And so I said, okay, fair enough. I got to get around to reading this. So I read it once a couple of months ago, had no idea what to do with it, sat it down for a little while, came back to it again a few weeks ago, reread it. And still, I'm pretty sure I have no idea what to do with it, but I adore it and I'm looking for a space to discuss it. So figured I'd come on and see if you guys could help me make sense of it. <laughs> because we're just talking about hearing, you know, the hearsay coming mm-hmm. across Melina, it, you know, it's it's wonderful when you you hear how the narrator, the, the, the unknown woman in uh, Melina comes mm-hmm. across Melina. It's hearsay as well because she says, one morning I found him in the paper. The article wasn't about Melina at all. It de- mainly dealt with Maria Melina's funeral and she's an actor the sister so he's sort of Mm. like a footnote like an unimportant footnote to a kind of pomp kind of funeral about this um this actress who's just died so isn't that wonderful (laughs) this kind Mm. of hearsay upon hearsay i just thought i'd drop that in there yeah (laughs) fascinating okay well i want to talk about uh ingeborg buckman herself because she's just fascinating and i think that when I was reading this book, I was thinking about her in the background of this book and her life. She was born in 1926 in Austria. Her father was a member of the Austrian Nationalist Socialist Party, which is basically the Nazi Party. She was well-educated. She received a PhD in 1949 and her dissertation was on Heidegger. She wrote radio plays, a libretto, much like you, Jen, lots of short stories. And Milena was her only completed novel, but there are a whole lot of uncompleted novels out there. It came out in 1971 and she was living at this time in Italy. In her life, she had a really long relationship with Max Frisch. Uh, She was admired by writers like Thomas Bernhardt and Flora Yegi, as you said, Seth. She died in 1973 as a probable result of smoking in bed. But do you want to tell us a little bit more about her, Jen, and some of those people she used to hang around with? Yes, well, both of those two people that you mentioned, um, Thomas Bernhardt, who was younger, or well, they're both younger, Flora Yagi, um, they both saw her as a mentor. Like she was an important mentor to those those people. They were very close. Um, and um, Thomas Bernhardt, well, she she advised Thomas Bernhardt to to leave. Louisiana just to, to, to preserve his sanity mm. um and it's kind of interesting because um she, she figures as a as well ostensibly she ostensibly figures as a, the character Maria in Extinction his final final published novel um and uh it, it's kind of interesting because she in I just sort of looked that up the other the other day just to see how she figures, she sort of figures in a dream by the narrator um, and she sort of turns up in opera garb, speaking of opera, because mm-hmm. when she was, when she, when Ingeborg Buckman moved to Rome for a long time, she was living with Hans Werner Henze, the um, composer who, for whom she wrote a lot of the libretti for, and in the dream in, in, um, in Extinction, she turns up in this outlandish opera garb, this sort of satin sort of, outfit with mm-hmm. satin um and she takes her shoes off so um yes it's it's she's sort of um and I think there's there's an important line in there which I really think is is how 
it's a testament to how important she was to um Bernhardt. Uh, she she talks well, he, he he writing about Maria, the character Maria, who of course um just reminds me of the Maria Malina kind of reference I just referred to before. But anyway, um Bernhard writes about Maria. She is fully present in every line she writes, everything in it being uniquely hers. And I think that was very important for his work. Um to have someone who was older, older than him. I mean, he's born in when? Um 1931. So a good um can you do the maths for me? Like later? five years older, yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, she's five years older, but Fleur Yagi is um when was she born? She's in the forties, is that right? She's nineteen forty. I think so. I think she's early forties, yeah. isn't she? Yeah, she's a lot um lot younger. Yeah, and I think she sort of so she had this sort of older states person, if you like, literary states person role for them. Apparently, uh, Fleur de Yagi, is that right, Seth? Um, apparently, Ingeborg Bachmann used to refer to her as a little lion. Um, yeah, but my understanding is it wasn't just. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't just a relationship of mentorship, though, right? They were also peers and good friends, as I understand it. Um, I know Yegi was incredibly broken up by the death of Bachman. Uh, I would go so far as to suggest that the novel The Water Statues wouldn't mm. exist if it weren't for Ingborg's death. But anyway, we'll get back to that later, I'm sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's also something that Bernhardt saw in her work. Mm. I mean, there's this kind of intensity of literary mind meeting another literary mind. Um, and I'm not as familiar. The only the only flesh I've, I've I've read is the um, Sweet Taste of Discipline. That's um, the one that many people have read, and her work is so different. It's so it's so different to. Um, they're all, they, but they all have a. All those writers have an intensity, which I think Ingeborg Bachmann's work um, very much has, and I think a lot of that goes also back to that kind of um, that group forty-seven. They're kind of mm. sort of foregrounding literary excellence as a way of um, making a statement. You know, being being what they can do after. The Second World War. Yeah, it's such a, an interesting period in which she kind of, I guess, this group 47 got together in as well, which is just a fascinating group of writers and people like living in this post-war Austria, Germany, places like that. And she was clearly like a pretty big part of this group. Do you want to tell us, Seth, just about that period in time about this post-war Austria just to trace back for a second, it's interesting how she is heralded as uh, such a figure of literary excellence as she really cut her teeth as a poet prior to becoming a prose stylist. Yeah, I think she wrote uh, mostly poetry until she turned 30. But my understanding is she began to feel like poetry was limiting her ability to express herself um, and kind of the limits of expression became a pretty salient theme in her late work. 
Um, I think there was probably a political valence in there as well, which is kind of, it's hard not to be if you're in this particular era. But I mean, the book was published in 71. So if you situate that, that's, you know, a couple decades past World War II, or about a decade past the Cuban Missile Crisis, 62, which I kind of hold that to be sort of the peak of the Cold War. That's arguable. But basically, we're looking at a book that was published kind of pinned between an era of open combat and one of sort of more political subversion and bureaucratic maneuvering. Uh, I would go so far as to say that if it wasn't for the Second World War, Nazism and fascism, this book, as we know, it wouldn't exist. It's deeply flowing through the bloodstream of Molina. Um I would say kind of an inciting incident for where her head was at when she got to the stage in her life was actually in 38 uh, when Hitler's army marched into her hometown of Klagenfurt. Uh, I think that's where she, she had this quote that she said, um, I think I wrote it down somewhere here. She described it as the specific moment which destroyed my childhood. It was something so terrible that my memory begins with that day, with that very early sorrow. And, you know, that was kind of, you could almost view that as a catalytic event, which really kickstarted her thinking. Um, she was a political leftist, as I understand it. And that was somewhat spurned by her... Um, her father as well, he was a school teacher, but like you said, he belonged to the Austrian branch of the National Socialist Party, which is uh, basically a Nazi movement. Um, and I think a lot of what is baked into her work, particularly Molina's sort of resistance against that. But if either of you want to push back on that idea, feel free to do so. No, I kind of completely agree with you there, Seth, because I feel like this... Uh... This teenager, she would have been 13, 14, going into World War II, watching the German troops like come into Austria. Um, and I feel like this features so heavily in this book, especially towards the end, which we will get to shortly. But yeah, this period was clearly like a turbulent period in, in her life. And I don't think, I don't think it's something that she ever was able to resolve in any kind of way, which I I, I assume no one would. No, well, and I, I gather she also I also gather she never revealed um her but um in her life well in her lifetime she never spoke about her father's um Nazism. Apparently he joined the Nazi Party, I think in 1932, so before yeah, Hitler early. marched in. So mm. um it was something that possibly could not be said or was too big to be said. Mm. Um But if we had a good sort of half a decade of him holding this sort of ideological viewpoint, you've got to believe that that made it into her life growing up as a child, right? Like there's, there's no way yeah. you're a member of that particular political group and not have that uh, play into the way that you're raising a family. And I mean, that's just the, that's uh, ground zero for her. Right. I think uh, it was in the, Emma Garman piece in the Paris Review, the, she said something like, um, fascism isn't an aberration, but it's an intrinsic part of everyday life. Uh, not something you can really restrict or compartmentalize into a particular time period, but something that will consistently be there irrespective of time and place. And 
I saw that particularly in the sort of late third of Molina when the character Molina turns to the unknown woman and he says something to the effect of uh, it's not supposed to be discussed, only lived with. Mm. And I couldn't help but think that that probably is saying a lot about sort of the conditions under which she grew up. Mm. I think her relationship as well uh, with the two men in this book, I think she describes it at some point as you know, there, there being times of war and peace, like within a war, but in terms of like relationships, it's just war, um, paraphrasing <laughs> completely, but yes. Are they two men, Ben? Are they two men? Good question. Are they two men? One I of the big so. questions of the book, I suppose. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm reading this as they are two men. I'm happy for you guys to input whatever opinions you have about them being men or not men or however they choose to identify. Dan, you want to tackle that one? Well, it's I I mean they're they're there as men, but um even Ingeborg Buckman used to talk about Melina being the double. Um and it's and it's very interesting about how, you know, there's there's lots of places where um where the, the two men, if you like, are sort of doubled or multiplied somehow within the narrator, who, the unknown woman. Um, you know, she, you know, I propagate myself with words and also propagate Ivan. So, you know, becoming the author of Ivan, but then just a little bit down the same page, I think I am double, I'm also Melina's creation. And there's 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 a kind of a moment when there's this kind of um other voice speaking and, and she says it's a hymn. Um there's there's lots of Double doubleness. Um, she always in. I gather she intended the rest of their ways of the styles of death. Uh, what this is the first book of to be narrated by Melina. Um, this this sort of male kind of like narrative. But I've just realised, you know, just I was just realising today, you know, the cleaner's called Lena. Um, <laughs> Melina is 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 him, and she's living with. Melina, mm. the cleaner's called Lena, so he's like the bad Lena. They both mm. clean up after her. They both talk, you know, she's some, the the unknown woman is someone who creates mess and dust, and they are both in their different ways cleaning up after her. Um, it's so fascinating. It's kind of a playing within, um, you know, you can, it's, it's so fascinating because it can be read as gender politics, you know, what, what it's, what it is to be to be in a kind of court situation in um, between these two figures. You could read them as a Max Fisher and uh, Paul Salah kind of mm. figure because Paul Salah had two sons, or you could just see it as a kind of an internal um, displace, displacement play, really, which is, that's I guess, how I see it. What about you, Seth? Well, displacement or destabilization, maybe, mm. and... As I understand it, she had to revise long swaths of the book after Paul Ceylon's death, which I don't think is as simple as to say that Melina is a Paul Ceylon ar archetype on which she's just in, attempted to sort of um, fictionalize him. But I do think that that character acts as something as a sort of identity or mask that, that she as a woman has to put on in order to have the space to be able to express herself which 
again, is complicated by the fact that he's somewhat of an oppressive character as well. Not nearly as much as something like the third man in the second part of the book, but um, uh, you, you get what I'm saying with that. Mm. Yeah, he, yeah. In, in some sense, Ivan is also an Ivan, like Porcelain had the two children too, and he when you see how he doesn't like the idea of her writing about death and wants her to write about happy things, you know, in some sense that's a different kind of oppression, even though he is the figure of happiness, um, the figure of... Yeah, she's happy with Ivan. Suppose, mm-hmm. even though there's other... In, in, in exactly that chapter she writes, she's not happy with him. Um, yeah, two very different... Um, yeah. Yes, it's not certainly not as simple as that. You're right, absolutely right, yeah. I'm- I mean, he's trying to get her to conform to this idea of what he thinks that proper writing should be, all this happy-go-lucky stuff. And, you know, and he, he comes across that manuscript, that metafictional manuscript, because it's called uh, the Todesarden or Death Styles, right? Like, uh, that was the name of this cycle of novels that were meant to exist. And this is what this character is writing, which kind of adds this sort of auto-fictional element to it. I mean, it'd be hard to read this unknown woman as not some form of an extension of Ingeborg. But um, I, I did view these two men, such as they are, as characters that grow incrementally more progressive or oppressive as the book carries on. Um, and then by the end, obviously we know where that ends up, but I won't spoil that just yet. Mm. I I was curious about after like looking at these two characters to try and kind of place them within that period of time. And I'm talking like post-war, not when she wrote the book, but how they represent, I guess, different ways of oppression, because I feel like the, I guess that communist notion of oppression and the Nazi notion of oppression as well, I think come through with these characters. The Molina character, the Molina figure um, has this very much straight kind of official kind of stance about it. And he, he, he works at a munitions um, museum, is that right? He sort of has the kind of imprimatur of knowledge, um, history. I mean, he, mm. he oversees... Um, and yet, actually, to think again about whether he's a can be considered a separate figure or not from the unknown woman, he mm. he's described as having published some um, uh, apocrypha in the nineteen fifties. It's <laughs> like, well, I guess Ingemar Bachmann could consider her own works or her earlier poems. Um, but he, yeah, he represents the state in some sense. Mm. So, yeah, to that extent. And he's kind of insinuates himself. I mean, you can see that as he is like her confessor in the in the in the, the final part, if you like. She or also in the in the third man in the middle section, mm. she she relates her the the dreams to him, and he's there to to listen as intimately as a confessor. Um, in that sense, it's quite um, sinister. Deeply sinister. Deeply sinister. Yeah, mm. yeah. But speaking of which, um, did either of you think of the yellow wallpaper? You know that book by that um, from the eight oh the eighteen nineteenth century book by Charlotte um, 
Charlotte Gilman. Um, it's oh, it's it's a, a short story, and it's about a relationship of a of a woman who's considered mad. And um, do either of you know that that story? No, I'm, not I'm familiar uh, with it by title, but I haven't read it. Yeah, um, it's well. We're not revealing yet where the book goes to, but in the mm. sense of um, it, yet where Melina goes to. But in the in the yellow wallpaper, there's a very sinister relationship between the husband, who's a doctor, looking after the sick sick wife, and she's there in this kind of old Gothic um, place where she's supposed to rest, not do anything, not to write, and. Um, she gets obsessed with the wallpaper and the state of the wallpaper, and yeah, it's it's I coming back to that and wondering about. It, I couldn't help but wonder whether she was aware of it. Apparently, it became it was revisited in the nineteen seventies, mm. um, like it it gone out of thought. I mean, it's no, um, yeah, I wonder because it, it it seems to have quite a quite a. Lucky, coincidental, or or quite deeply resonant um, relationship with Melina and and what's going on between that sinister but apparently kind of caring relationship of the mm. of the the male um, in the house. I feel like in this book, especially towards the end of it, that she's just getting gaslit by you know, especially by Melina. Like it just seems like this whole, and we do start to doubt what's real and what's not, especially towards the end where you get this like dissolution of self and, and she is questioning what's happening. I think there's a, like, there's a scene towards the end where he's just got rid of all her clothes from the wardrobe. And like, I don't know why, but that scene in particular for me was like so resonant, um, especially in this idea where we don't know what's happening and we don't know what's real. And, you know, is she being gaslit? Is, is this actually happening to her? Mm, absolutely yeah yeah it's very strongly then mm. well uh, it's just on the thought of um gaslighting i mean mm. typically if you're going to uh, draw it back to the film gaslight from which it derives <laughs> its name um it is typically something that's done to a woman by a male correct mm. and i think that the sort of um the heteronormative relationships between these two men i can't help but interweave those with what's going on in the political background with fascism and i don't think that's too much of a stretch either mm -hmm. i pulled up something from an interview she did very late into her life i can't remember which one it is i'll see if i can uh, dig it up for the show notes but she said uh fascism is the first element in the relationship between a man and a woman um, and I, I think that's a, quite an interesting and provocative concept, sort of, if you look at the, um, the sort of patriarchal um, sort of structure overlaying this, the, the unknown woman, she's driven to self, you know, to borrow your words, disillusionment and destruction by the end of it, by these men who allegedly love her, you know, all the unknown woman does, who is by all accounts, a, a talented and successful author. But throughout this book, the majority of what she's doing is 
drinking, smoking, writing letters that she doesn't send, sending maybe, sending maybe telegrams and suffering psychologically all at the hands of what these these two characters are imparting upon her. Um, I don't know if there's more you want to say into that idea, but I, I think, think the mechanics of fascism are very deeply intertwined with the mechanics of what I might go so far as to call misogyny here. I think yeah. that, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that the strong theme of fascism and and let's, I hate this term. I really hate this term, but I'm going to use it. That toxic masculinity phrase, yeah. which um, I think in this book, it actually is the perfect phrase in a lot of ways, because I think it does overlap with um, with our themes of fascism and oppression and um, and a lot of things she goes into within the book. I don't know yeah. if it is the right phrase. And the reason I say that is because it's not about them. The mm-hmm. the men really toxic masculinity implies that they are the object of focus, but mm-hmm. it it's her experience that's being uh, recorded here. It's the only kind of lines they have in this place, so to speak, is the actions that they impart on her mm-hmm. or rather the actions that they don't allow her to do through oppression. And that's mainly her ability to express herself. Would you, would you agree? What about, well, that's, it's, that's interesting because that immediately makes me again, think of the yellow wallpaper Mm. because there's the characters is, is not supposed to write, but the toxic masculinity, what about the, the the father figure in the third man section, mm. the middle section. I mean that the horrendous, um, a, a, the incest abuse. You know the mm. the graveyard of the murdered daughters. In a, some sense, a kind of um, a kind of basic, basic, basic um, um, intrusion and trauma. I mean, there's the there's a reference to the mother figure in that kind of section in the the it's like a series of dreams or mm-hmm. um being also victimized it's um and a strong sense of there being a it's interesting because like i haven't seen any reference to this in any kind of biographical sense but um in 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 the novel she talks about the seventh generation you know it, it kind of eluding and 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 the narrator saying i'm I won't have descendants, but the whole thing of this entrenched, violent, um, violent trauma of uh, men with men and women, um, yeah, abuse. I guess. I guess. Mm. So, to that extent, that really concentrates it. The um, the toxicity, I would say, which is there. Um, if we just think back about fascism and her. Very deep awareness of political context and um, her her fascination with that, and how I mean, I think I remember reading in some other interview where she sees her way of being able to comment is to write the kind of work she does, the way mm. the way she contributes to that. So it's like um, at, at the center is this is this um, kind of a nightmare scenario. Where Melina, um, ironically or not, is the interlocutor of the material. I think that the the sense that I got as well is that 
she is so disempowered in this book and all of her little ideas to empower herself kind of don't actually get anywhere. Like she's writing these letters, like you said, um, she's possibly writing telegrams, possibly writing a book, but everything seems to be thwarted by external factors. Like everything seems to not actually come to fruition for her. And, mm. and it goes back to that whole section in the third man section where she, you know, obviously has no power when she's being abused by her dad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the fas- fascism element is what plays in, or that's when that comes to light most heavily is in the third man sequence. Mm. You, um, you use the word disempowered Ben, and I think that's a perfect choice of words here. Um, I'll put out an idea that requires a little bit of a digression, but stick with me for a second. Uh, German Jewish culture critic and philosopher Walter Benjamin, uh, he wrote this massive thousand page treatise called Der Passigen Werk or The Arcades Project, um, which is kind of the body of his life's work. And it focused on a a number of different things, but it fleshed out an idea that he initially built up in one of his earlier collections, Illuminations, and that was a novel theory of fascism, which is the blending of aesthetics into politics. Um, and this, this aestheticization of politics is an interesting idea because what it what he proposes that it allows for is for people to express themselves without seeing their rights recognized. And so it shifts the focus to expression, artistic expression, uh, rather than effective governance and expression without effects is aesthetics. Well, what is what is the unknown woman doing in the a good chunk of this book? She's she's writing things that she's trying to express herself that aren't actually having any impact because, you know, Ivan's coming up to her and saying, no, I don't like the way you write that. You need to do this this way. And she's not being allowed to express herself in the way that she wants to. And if we kind of map on this aestheticization of politics onto the world of Molina, you could see fascism being kind of the perfect unit of iconography if you will to kind of paint onto the face of this this father figure i don't think it's literally her father i don't think her father literally abused her like that but her father was a fascist he was he was a part of the nazi party and so what better a sort of a a person to encompass or um, anthropomorphize this this period of intense political oppression that she lived lived under. I don't know. Am I just talking out the side of my ass here, or does this make any sense at all? Yes. It, well, it's um, it her her whole work is um is is trying to work against that that powerlessness and mm. um, which what it's what makes it so poignant. And I and um, especially when. When I when I read when I understood that she wrote a thousand pages before she knew how she was going to begin this mm. this this whole this whole project and how she needed to hit hit upon the idea that Melina would narrate the rest like this she was obviously um, wrestling with what it means to have a voice and whose voice it's going to be um, and the voice of um, as she puts, you know, the unknown woman has a messy voice. You know, she she creates dust everywhere, um, and 
you know, I think towards the end she talks about leaving scraps and that Melina won't be able to make any sense of it, yet he's going to do it. So what a fascinating project to, to leave mm. the death styles to, to someone who can't understand the, the, the material he'll be narrating. It's, it, it already creates a fascinating tension. Um, but is is she leaving it with intention or is he taking it because d- does she have the agency to say, actually, I'm going to leave, uh, leave this to you. I know late in the book, there was this, I think it's right near the end of the third man segment. Um, the, the line is, I know my sentences won't leave me and I have a right to them. My father looks through a peephole and all I can see are his glazed eyes. He'd like to copy my sentences and take them from me. But in the greatest thirst after my last hallucinations, I know he is watching me die without words. Like it, it almost seems to me like this, this mode of expression that she's developing, the unknown woman in this Death Styles project is being taken from her. Uh, but again, being the dilettante that I am, I am possibly misinterpreting here. Well, it is. I mean, that's that's a fascination. It is. It's a whole narrative about it being taken, it being robbed, mm. everything being robbed from her. And yet, um, it's the the bit that I was thinking of is is later in the book. In one mm. of the, you know, how she has the, the kind of dialogue sections. Me, Melina, mm. me, Melina. Um, you know, Melina, you really have to clean up your room sometime. All these yellowed pages and scraps of paper completely covered with dust. Someday, no one will be able to find his way around in them and the me part says what what's that supposed to mean nobody needs to find his way around here I have my reasons for making things messier and messier but if anyone has a right to see these scraps it's you but you won't be able to find your way around my dear since years from now you wouldn't understand what one thing or another means I mean yes all those things disappear she tries to put her letters somewhere she stuffs them in somewhere and everything just seems to be leaked and yet there is a, a sense of knowing that he's not going to be able to make anything of it, mm. um, which is, yeah, that's part of that fascinating tension. And is that by virtue of the fact that he's a man? Is it the feminine experience that makes it impossible for him to be able to interpret what's being left on these scraps? Or is there some other I don't element? know because Lena, you know, the cleaner mm. is um, – she she's a female figure in the book and and she cleans up as well in the, it's it's um i don't know i think yes and no i think both <laughs> yes and no i think that's where where she places the the complexity there um i sort of um i think there's sort of a paradox to the language here uh, a specific, or the language or the expression, if you want to use those two terms interchangeably, I'm sure some linguists would take issue with that. But um, what's that line early in the book? Something to the effect of expression is insanity. It arises mm-hmm. from our insanity. I think it's it's somewhat, if you want to take this book to be at least in part about how female expression is suppressed and extinguished, it's possible that maybe this this unknown woman views her ability to write as both a path to liberation and also an act of subjugation the moment she actually Mm. expresses it 
Because one thing I think, and this kind of leads back to this, um, this overlaying of fascism over top of the patriarchal element is um, uh, the fact that we are talking about German, the language that she wrote it in, right? And at this point in time, I mean, well, it was later on, but what the Nazis did to the German language was just incredible to, to mutate it in such a way that by expressing herself through this language in a way she's almost possibly being complicit in um uh in the fascistic uh values of the time if that makes sense hmm. i mean it's there's there's definitely a problematizing of language in here mm. i mean a sense of uh and i I haven't been aware of that aspect of what that system did to the, to the language, but you know, Ungargasa, where she where she's living, and Ungargasa land where she's got this this this. It's her, a kind of a home place where she even when she goes on holiday, she's got to come back again. But isn't Ungar? It's it refers it's referred to somewhere here or I read somewhere means unfinished, undone. You know, it's a hmm. it's a place, which is why I really think that the Marlena and the Lelina is, is there is this playing with um, words in a way that pit the tension, make the tension more obvious. The difficulty with language. Um, there's um, there's some somewhere else where she writes. Um, the narrator writes. Something is always eluding me, but internally, wherever I, whenever I explore this intimate, infinite space inside me, and when you think of you, she's got that Melina inside, or she's got even Ivan inside it. You know, there's this kind of um, wrestling with language and expression. There, there's a there's a difficulty in, in getting to the expressiveness um, that she needs to, and yet that's. Is it, is it also in the Frankfurt lectures where she talks about, um, I've just seen a reference to it as I was mentioning before, earlier that I, I haven't been able to read the Frankfurt lectures. Um, well, I haven't come across them in English, unfortunately. I was saying to you guys earlier that I saw you can you can, you can buy them in Turkish but um, not in English, uh, um, where, um, yeah, she talks about there is the eye of the diary writer, the eye, you know, the 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 kind of unproblematic eye, and what she's doing with this kind of eye is something much more problematic. She's she and she's putting that prob, um, well, I guess problematic in a positive sense that in in her use of that first person, she's um, She's being able to express what she can and also what she can't express. She talks about someone inside me, someone who never agreed with me. I mean, there is this inattention um, which must indeed come with the language and the the, con the context that she's growing up in. You know, did I was really struck by, you know, how some of the important seemingly biographical maybe references in Melina um, are, often, are almost parenthetical. Um, you know, there's a bit where she refers to being put up against a, a wall and nearly shot in. In um, did you did you notice? Did you notice that? Um, uh, that was like in the in middle, wasn't it? Yeah, when she was um, 
yes, it's just, yes, it's, it's uh, as I said, it's almost parenthetical, where she, with a friend, Wilma, Wilma or someone is, is put up against a wall. I mean, my Penguin copy, it's on page 258. Um, oh, no, sorry, not that one. Uh, it's page 90, being put up against a wall when she, um, as a, because of her um, resistance efforts and ready to be shot, reminded me, reminded me, of course, of Maurice Blanchot and um, Dostoevsky, this kind of um, what it means to, I mean, for someone like Blanchot, you know, it's almost like all of his writing proceeds from this moment of, of, of having a kind of near death. And I, I was very curious. I don't know whether this in fact happened, but um, this extremity of experience um, as, as I read it as a teenager, you know, um, resisting against, if you like, the, the other of what her father represented and what her family officially represented as a bourgeois mm. middle class. Well, family. Blanchot was um, fascinated with sort of the concept of the Orpheus, the Orphean gaze, right? That moment of turning when um, Orpheus hears, oh, what's her name, Eurydice behind him and then turns around and then she's sent right back down to hell. But that moment of turning is, some people have said that that moment of choosing to make the decision is what occupies a lot of his thinking, particularly in something like um, Tomal Obscure, um, which kind of came to mind while I was reading this as well. It's sort of that that paradox of being stuck between the implicit need to express oneself, but um, what are the implications of actually expressing yourself? Or if she does so, what does she have to take on or assume to be able to express herself in a way? And is that um, is that an act of um, self uh, jeopardization? Is not the word I'm looking for. Um, no, it's just it is interesting that you bring up Blunt Show because that was someone who came to mind for me as well while I was reading this. Um, and if you want to talk parenthetical biographical details here how about that one right near the end of the novel i have to watch out that i don't fall face first onto the stove i don't want to burn myself <laughs> where i so often burn <laughs> scraps of paper at night oh yes um, yes i i couldn't like <laughs> i couldn't help but read that and just think oh god um that is darkly prescient in its own way but it's interesting because that stove is where she spends so much time burning her scraps of paper in the book mm -hmm. and if fire is the way through which her life was extinguished you know there's an interesting sort of parallel there uh when she went her words went with her or did she go when her words went kind of thing it's sort of um, oh at the end yeah mm. well just in in reality as well you know it's a, a deeply autofictional book in its own way. And another, it's a fleeting moment of fire. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know that, you know, when she's getting sort of interviewed by that Herr Mühlbauer, they, oh, there's a scent, I think it's um, in the Happy with Ivan section. Mm. Um, you, you don't get his questions, you get her answers and he's, he's mm. tape recording them. There's wonderful um, dramatic sort of, 
the way she uses scraps of music, um, dialogue, um, you know, the, the kind of multiple kind of texture, um, text of the texture um, of this novel is extraordinary. Um, but she's she must be it must have been asked about which which uh, which were the books that had impressed her and um, what sticks what and she or she writes about the, or she you know is narrating supposedly and that's been tape recorded by Herr Mühlbauer. And she refers to, she writes, um, says, avec ma main brûlée, j'écris sur la nature du feu. She quotes, she quotes um, Flaubert, you know, where he writes to Colette, his lover, in, in those letters where he writes about how he, he writes um, with his burnt hand um, about the nature of fire. And in some sense, so that was one of the little fragments that she, she refers to as, as literature that's stuck in the interview. Um, which is also extremely um, poignant, um, mm. but it's also about what she, if you like, what she's writing—the impossibility of writing, of of writing um, within this mis misogynistic, fascistic context. Um, what it means to be writing something that a um, uh, a male narrator will be taking on and running with, with presumably other versions of the not other um terms of the the novel um yeah that that she that the writing is kind of written with a burnt hand is quite um what does she give up to have this level of um notoriety you know rachel kushner suggests that in order to get to where she is she had to become something of a quote-unquote honorary man right and when she goes mm. to that list of writers that she admires in that interview um they're all male writers yes, and then yes. right at the end when joseph k which i can assume is only the joseph k from the trial right mm. um who steps out and comforts her i think it's a, a moment of comfort as well it's just um <laughs> that was wasn't really sure what to do with that mentally, but I thought it was a, just a fascinating moment where I go, okay, let's step back into the annals of history here. Yeah, and I think there's um, oh, the, the I guess, I don't know, the writer, uh, Sarah Lennox, wrote this whole book on uh, more of a feminist analysis of um, Ingeborg Bachmann, which I've only been able to read some, some segments of, but she points out that, there's sort of no female writers that refer to in the entire book. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and you referred to Fleur Yagi uh, earlier. Isn't isn't is it right that somewhere she when she talks about a little trip that she and Ingeborg Bachmann took? Um, I think um, was it maybe 1971 or so, early 70s, uh, maybe not long after. This book was published, where she talks about Ingeborg Bachmann manning the the um, <laughs> the maps or something, <laughs> doing all the kind of taking on that role. And um, certainly, Thomas Bernhardt would sort of talk about um, refer to her as if she's an exception for being a, an intelligent woman, because <laughs> he didn't see he, he could see that as an oxymoron. And yet he could also see as he refers to her as his first poet. Um, mm. And he doesn't refer to her as his first female poet. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite, it's really fascinating. 
I find it so interesting because I think this novel can be viewed as like this feminist novel, but at the same time, I suppose she's also trying to be a man in in a lot of ways within this milieu of of people. Um, but I guess the novel also like it fits into this category of a psychological thriller or a political historical novel. But I'm curious to hear what you think about how this novel holds up after 50 years of being published because I find that this novel is so fresh and so poignant and so um so prescient today oh definitely definitely um it's very prescient and it's one of those I think it's because of the tension because she's not um doesn't have this overarching ultimate meaning because she puts everything into tension that it can continue to generate meaning or it does continue to generate meaning. Um, it, there's this one fragment I did find from the, the Frankfurt Letters where she talks about um, what the, um, the, a writer can, can do. Um, I mean, she, they can succeed at two things, at representing his time, I guess I'm not sure that must be the translation or uh, where the gender of the pronoun there is, but at presenting some, but presenting the time. So in that sense, that's what she's doing here. But the thing that I was thinking of in answer to your question, Ben, is at presenting something for which the time has not yet come. And because I really read, especially her exploration, exploration of multiplicity, I, for me, that's way ahead of her time and and kind of almost ahead of our time where um, multiplicity is only, I mean, it's a very new, it's, it's still a very new controversial idea about what what ha what is a self, you know, is it possible to be a multiplicity of selves, which we can see that as what she does with the, the split sort of eyes as a, as a trope, but you can also see that it's much more deeply felt, much more deeply experienced and, I would say very much ahead of its time. Mm. What about you, Seth? Yeah, I do. I mean, just in um, probably sounding like a one note here, but it is one of the things that I was thinking about at front of mind while reading this, but just in um, terms of the gender politics of it, even just looking at something as simple as, um, well, it's not simple at all, but uh, something like gender identity these days, multiplicity is something that you see becoming more and more. I don't want to use the word mainstream because that's not an accurate representation. It's always been there. It's just a matter of social acceptance now. But you can see her adopting these different identities throughout the book because I do strongly believe that Melina, while that might be its own individual character, is in his way an extension of herself. And um, if she did, if she did map or structure that character around elements of her relationship with um, Paul Ceylon, it's kind of a beautiful tribute, is it not? Uh, in the way that this person was so instrumental in her life that she felt like she adopted elements of that person into her own interiority. Like I, I think there are, it's not just 
a vicious and violent book. There are incredibly touching elements to it as well. And I think I've digressed from the question entirely. <laughs> as I want to do. Sorry, this has been something of a freeform discussion. I hope you don't mind the occasional digression. But I guess like one of your questions, is it a timely book? Absolutely. I think this is one that is only going to get better as time goes on and on subsequent reads, particularly because if you want to wire yourself into the fascism element of it, that is still there in today's society. That is not going away anytime. Um, there's, I can't remember what page the line was coming from, but an interesting little fragment I picked up was society is the biggest murder scene of all in the seeds of the most incredible crimes are sown in the sunless manner. Crimes remain forever unknown to the courts of this world. Like, I think uh, that's very much instrumental to the sort of crimes and wrongs we see put on, on people today is so much of it is uh, behind closed doors, as is much of the violence, emotional and psychological in this book. It's it's behind the closed doors of the unknown woman and the the men that she interacts with. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think this is something that will grow more prescient and more relevant with each successive read. And I also think it's something that you're going to discover more from with each subsequent read. Mm. I'm curious about what you both think about the fact that this novel, and I think it is almost a perfect novel in a lot of ways, but the fact that this is something that she started and was part of a sequence of books and they're obviously unfinished. This is what we have. And in English, we don't have a whole lot of work from her, but what do you think those other books would have followed up on in this sequence well the fragments have been published right um you've got requiem for franny goldman is it and the book of franza um so i think we could potentially read some of where she was going i would be hesitant to speculate and the reason i say that is this book was so uh disorienting and surprising to me i had no idea where it was going i really can't imagine where she would take it i think what possibly a more interesting idea is um the concept of the Todesarten, the the death styles um is that could that be viewed as a um a proto genre and has anyone written in the lineage of that style since her? Is that something she has a monopoly on? Because I think as gender politics continue to be a source of extreme contention in uh, contemporary society, I think this is something that you could absolutely see carried on in writers who followed in her lineage, no? Mm. Mm. It's just an idea. Oh yes, I'd be. I I've only read. I think it's a fragment of the Book of Franza because it, it's not. I think there's a longer piece that's um, there, but it's so the kind of I guess the the possibilities that are sort of hinted at there with a very different kind of landscape, which um, I gather may be somewhat there in that. Um, uh, that the, the film that's coming out that can't become the desert landscape the mm. the brute the you know images of sand and blood and um 
gen oh, not so much gender but um, race as well it's just that that comes up there to do with what it means to be white black brown um the yeah not shying away from painful painful realities i guess yeah i, I, I would i am very curious to read the, the extended fragments which i haven't haven't read um who would you say says um come in the lineage of this this kind of work i um i do think the water statues is an interesting follow-up to melina i think anyone who's read that should read it it's much shorter you can read it in a single sitting but i think there are elements of this fractured identity and subjugation from different sort of um sources of oppression i think that's something that you see pervading that book and i i don't think it's a stretch to think that what ingborg did as a creative and a person was at the front of mind for yegi when she wrote it as i mentioned earlier the novel is dedicated to her and there's this really interesting line just tacked right to the first third that says water is a burnt body and um i couldn't help but read that knowing what happened to ingborg in the end um i don't think the water statues she necessarily calls it the death styles she has she drops a different phrase in there that's very disorienting when she does she calls it the slaughterhouse aesthetic um Wow, and I think um, they're very different books in its own way. But I would encourage anyone who's read Molina to go out and give that a shot as well, because I think it operates as a fascinating coda, and one with a male at the center of it, which would fit nicely into how Molina ends in its own way. Which is actually a question I wanted to ask you to. Um, and I guess I should maybe put, I, I don't really consider this the type of book you can spoil, but there are people who are sensitive to that sort of thing. So spoiler for the ending coming up, but let anyone pause here if they want. Uh, what do you make of how the narrator in the final moments of the book, the unknown woman, she disappears into the crack in the wall mm -hmm. and the story is bookended from the perspective of Melina. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for interpretation so much as just guttural responses to that, because I thought there's got to be intentionality ending with a male voice and one who's been acting as something of um, um, an antagonistic force in his own way. I think for me, especially reading that last probably third of the book, because um, I think I read the first two thirds relatively like not fast, but that last third of the book, I think I read in like an afternoon and um, had to go back and read probably the last 50 pages again because I wanted to make sure that I kind of got what happened. And the other book that gave me the same feeling was The End of 100 Years of Solitude by, by um, Marquez because it almost like folds in on itself at the end of the book and we lose track of like, it's almost like sloth up at the end of Gravity's Rainbow. Like we just lose track of, of where things are and who's in control and what's happening. And that loss of control within this book, the whole way through where she is losing 
control. She's losing um, control bodily and and control of everything that's happening to her. And then, you know, falling into this point where not only has she lost control and she's disappeared, but someone else is taking over her role in the book. Like, I think that for me was such a stunning kind of moment in the book that I, I did, I had to turn back and, and go back and read that part again, because I was just, um, I was stunned. Like it's, it's, it's actually quite brutal the way like the book um, finishes, I think. Weird, weird sort of comparative intertext here. But uh, if you go back, you'll notice in just that final little um, paragraph block when she disappears into the wall, mm. she takes a moment and briefly looks out back into the room. She's disappeared here. She no longer has a voice, but she still has a, a consciousness here. The first thing that came to mind was the sunken place from Get Out, the Jordan Peele <laughs> film from a couple of years ago. Did you see Get? <laughs> yeah. And that's about a different, a uh, different identity group being subjugated in their own way. I just, I thought there was a, a weird synergy there. Mm. By no means related, of course. They're separated by decades. She died before the film ever came out. But um, just an interesting thought that came to my head. Um, I don't know. Jen, care to weigh in? Well, I mean, it's, it's fascinating too because she also steps into the wall, you know. Mm. There's a kind of agency there as well. And it reminds me, yeah, of when she also, there's a moment earlier in the book where she steps into the mirror. You know? <laughs> yeah. So there's, yeah, she's, you know, there's a kind of like it will be murder and I step away. Um, but, you know, in the next paragraph I walk I've stepped over to the wall. I walk into the wall, holding my breath. I should have written a note. It wasn't Melina, but the wall opens. I'm inside the wall. I mean, mm. this is not right at the end, but in the sense mm. of there, there is a, it's not so clear about the agency of that. Um, and I just can't help but um, just think again about um, the yellow wallpaper, which I just now can't believe, I, I can't, think I can't uh not think of uh once I'd thought of it it's one of those things um especially walls wallpaper cracks um there is you know the, the this kind of um triumph of of someone who jumps out of the wallpaper someone going into the wall and jumping out of the wallpaper and foiling the attempts of the husband to to just keep her without a voice, like not writing. So mm. there is, um, it's eerie. Like we, we're in, we end up with an empty, I mean, it's very eerie and sinister in the sense that, you know, he just says no one ever lived here. You know, there's a kind of. <laughs> but is and, it, is it a desire to go into the wall or is it a resignation? Um, it, it's sort of, um there are a lot mm. of questions about the nature of her death, right? I I think back constantly to Wallace's description of um, sort of, or not description, but analogy of suicide, um, how the person in a burning building doesn't desire to jump out of the tall window, but the thought of the burning flames waiting for them there is worse than the thought of falling to their death, right? It's... Mm. 
is it yeah. that she wants to disappear yeah. under the wall or is it just the choice of what there is waiting for her without a voice in this world uh, that's a worse alternative right yeah so, I, mean, I mean that's amazing that it's also very interesting that you bring up Wallace and that comment about suicide I mean of course you know how the this whole novel starts with a dr- dramatis mm. personae, mm-hmm. you know, and time and place, and and the time is now. Um, today is a word that only suicides ought to be allowed to use. It has no meaning for other people. <laughs> I mean, it's right there too for us, you know. Yes, to what extent is is the stepping is is the stepping into the wall a necessary step away from what is far far worse? Yeah, mm. yeah. Obviously, like looking at her death as well. And, you know, we know she had lots of substance abuse issues. She had, you know, alcoholism and um, lots of other things. She was on barbiturates when she died. And um, smoking in bed obviously isn't very good for you either. But I suppose there's also that idea of, the, you know, the the stepping into to, to something like that, stepping into your own death in a lot of ways, which I think she probably ended up doing, um, whether intentionally or not directly intentionally, but. I think she kind of does that in her life as well as in this book. It's it is an incredible piece of work, and I think um, it's a hand grenade of questions. And how much it impacts you, I guess, is going to be the testament or the the sort of indicator in terms of how badly you want those questions answered. And I'm the sort of person where the amount of questioning that a book leaves me with is almost always. Uh, directly related with how badly I want to try and piece it together and make some sense of the bit. And I really don't think I have a perfect grasp on it by any stretch, but um, it's uh, it's an incredible, uh, incredible work. Jen, I want to ask you about your work and its relation to this work. Have you been inspired by this work in your writing? Ah. Uh... Not directly, because I, I read um, Melina relatively recently, mm. but I very much related to um, it, I guess diving into the well, the the kind of embracing of contradiction, um, the the way a narrative is not something that's tied up, that's tied up with a bow. It's, um, I guess, I, I just, when you were talking there, Seth, I was just thinking about um, that uh, Michael Bakhtinian idea of finalising, you know, um, that, again, it didn't, you know, precede my my own creative work, but when I came across this idea of novels that don't have one perspective, one finalised answer, I just thought, yes, that's that's what it is. I know in my heart of hearts that's so interesting and so important because it's it's um it 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 puts things at play. It puts in play opposite impossible to um to completely match kind of pieces, creative pieces. And the energy that's generated from that, I guess, is what is maybe something akin to what you talk about in terms of questions, Seth, or is, is kind of a resonance space. So I yeah, I really related to that. Um, and the, the performative energy, I guess, again, this does not precede my, the kind of, or at least my recent books, but um, 
the the sense of the using voice to make make worlds happen like the the narrative voice is not a kind of a simple um position it's not actually a simple position even though it sounds like it is um thinking because if the i in this in this novel is certainly not that um mm. so that's definitely another affinity for me i want to ask you both what books has this inspired you to read? I know, Seth, you've talked about the water statues, but has it like spurned you on to read other things? Well, I was already, I'd already, read, I'd already thought of water statues, so you mm. beat me to that mm. and have also read it. Um, mm. I, um, more of her work, really, um, because I've been, I've, I've, I want to read more of her work, um, and. Um, also, Laura Fleur Yagi's work. I mean, she, she mm -hmm. seems to me a very different kind of writer. I mean, as I said, I've only read the Sweet Days of Discipline, and yet the precision, the intensity, and the precision of her work is so interesting and exciting to me. Um, yeah, I'm always, I always read from following my nose so I know that I was going to go into more flu yagi I think from this mm. what about you Seth realistically the people in her orbit are probably the most likely candidates here mm. so more Bernhard I haven't read Salon and I haven't read Max Frisch and I'd be interested mm. to um read those and I will be looking for more Fleur Yagi as well I'm the opposite I haven't read Sweet Days of Discipline but have been told repeatedly to get a hold of it so that would be up shortly as well mm. yes I am zero on the Flora Yegi count so I will have to get onto that and um weirdly enough um uh Giedeborg board as well uh not someone who is remotely or obliquely referenced here um but in spectacle society there's this sort of idea um about authentic life being replaced with representation sort of the uh i think the phrase is the decline of being into having and having uh, into merely appearing and that sort of that idea of expression without any uh, palpable effects um it, weirdly it was just an idea that popped up in the back of my head recently when I read it as uh read um Melina the second time and so that would be another one that I intend to pick up I don't know if that's just a loose association or not but anyhow interesting cool all right well, we do look forward to this biopic film out in October. It's called Journey into the Desert. Um, I think it, it debuted, I think, earlier in the year in uh, one of the film festivals, but it's out everywhere in October. So looking forward to seeing that. You and me both. Yep, and me too. And and uh, which which is which I gather is about the, the, about um, Ingemar Bachmann and Paul Salon, and I was just going to add, yes, I I would like to. Um, I've got more curiosity now about Paul Salon um, mm. than I ever had. So yeah, just keep reading, following my nose.
Excellent. Well, speaking of following your nose, before we finish this off, I just want to ask you briefly, do you have some books that you're reading at the moment that you could recommend to all of us? Uh, let's see. No, because I'm reading Gravity's Rainbow again. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm a one trick pony. I can't. Uh, basically, no one needs to hear me recommend that book another time. Um, How many so reads is this? This must be like four this number. Five. This is number four. Okay, nice. There is a reason for it this time. But anyway, um, I'll just leave that one under wraps for the time being. Nice. <laughs> I truly am a one trick pony. <laughs> what about you, Jen? What have you got on the shelf? Oh, I've got so many things. And you, I've, I just have to go next to, um, I know, I'm, yeah, I'd, dipping into, well, I, I just had to reread this. And so that's already obliterated what was what was already next on um, on my shelf. Um, yeah, I sometimes read about five things at once. I'm sort of the opposite mm. of you there. Seth, I, I, um, I, I envy that. Um, I've been, I've been reading a really, a fascinating, um, piece that I'm, and so I suppose that's, um, by, um, Dominique Heck and Chantal, I can't remember her last name. I'm sort of, I'm doing a, I'm sort of, I'm reading that at, 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 at it's called, um, journal offbeat um i'm just i've just got a a copy that i'm i'm going to be reading and writing a few words on so that's been in my mind and um which is uh and then that that sort of leads into flanner flannerism sort of all that so i've been sort of reading around all those sorts of ideas um yeah and i think i but this you know, if I was to go back to when if I, if I say five things at once, I I had started "Long Live the Post Horn" by Victor Sjorth, and I, that that was paused because I went on to something else. So I've got a few pauses around next to mm. on my side of the bed. Okay, but I'll get back to that because I I love her work as well. Oh, so if we're including pauses, I've got a few of those as well on the go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a paused "Vits" by Joshua Cohen and a paused mm -hmm. "Paradiso" by Jose Lezama Lima for various reasons involving my fractured millennial attention span. <laughs> I can't plead that, but yes, I, I relate to it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, I should probably let you both go. Um, before we do, give me a one word sentence to tell people why they should read this book. Seth, you go first. Not a one-word sentence, obviously. I, I mean, a one-sentence uh, one description. One yeah, sentence. no, I, I caught your meaning. Oh, what a deeply difficult question! And you told me you would ask this too, and I made zero preparation for it whatsoever. <laughs> um, it's fascinating, and it will keep you questioning for days, weeks, months on end. In terms of its themes, gender, history, identity um subjugation liberation all of these things just building up one on top of another on top of another on top of another that was in no way a sentence <laughs> <laughs> um i don't recall having this this um question to prepare but i'll i'll give it a go 
<laughs> I'll give it a go. Um, thinking, if we just think that Bachman wrote her PhD on Heidegger, you know, and you think of Melina starts with being and time, you know, time and place, and in a sense it's a performance of now, if you like. And it's very performative. And to, and and then put that alongside, again, this is not one sentence, but the, the idea is simple in some ways, if you can hold it together. Um, her interests move very quickly or almost immediately at the same time as writing her PhD to Wittgenstein and, and um, away from Heidegger. Um, in fact, in... Um, in extinction, the 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 character Maria, based on her, is said to yes, she will talk with the narrator so long as she doesn't talk about Heidegger. Um, moving to Wittgenstein, and Wittgenstein is obsessed with what you know what can be said. And I would finish my long non sentence with, "This is a book that moves from being and time to the to the limits of what can be said." to what can't be said. That's what this book is about, what can't be said. How about that? Brilliant. Okay, great. We have some nice blurbs for the for the book, I think. Um, <laughs> excellent. Well, I'd like to thank you so much for both of you discussing this amazing book. I, I love this book. I think that everybody should go read it because it's just, it's, a, it's an extraordinary novel. Before we go, do you want to tell us where we can catch you online and if we want to get your books, Jan, as well? But Let's start with you, Seth. Where can we catch up with you online? Literally everywhere. Um, if there is a website, I am on it. It's so bad. Um, Are you on Blue Sky, it, by the way? Yeah, I am, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, my online identity is so disaggregated now that I've just got posting paralysis and I have no idea where to put anything. And so I'm living in a state of non-posting now. But if you want to get a hold of me, Oh, geez. Blue Sky, Threads, Twitter, Substack, YouTube, Instagram, you name it. Not Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. So at least there's that. Um, I, I think we should start an Inneborg Buckman style social media and it'll just be crack in the wall. And you just, you don't post anything. That's just nothing. Honestly, it sounds so refreshing right now. <laughs> Sign me up. Do I need an invite for this one? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. And I didn't say the name. It's just waste mailing list everywhere except for Twitter, which is waste mailing because they have character counts. Nice. What about you, Jen? Where can we get your books and where can we catch so, up with you? Can I just confirm, is that waste as in waste paper or waste as in not your hips? W-A-S-T-E. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, good. Um, I guess talk about disaggregation. There's a lot of disaggregation in my life, but probably the simple Plus way is through Instagram. My handle's absurd enticements. Uh, I did have a blog on that, which I sometimes think of coming back to um, absurd enticements. Um, my I don't post very much, and I tend to 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 hide behind my posts. Yeah, okay. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I. Um, hide behind the images that I, I post or what I post. So I, I'm aware of the, op I guess, the opposite of, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm 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 where you are now, the non-posting. Um, <laughs> I have been there for a long time. Um, my books should be, I guess, in, in, in bookshops. I uh, 
I hope. Um, Punch and Watman website, you can find my three are all there. Um, They're available you... now everywhere, aren't they? They're overseas as well. Yeah, um, Zero Gram released War, my latest book. Uh, they don't have the uh, the earliest one. Um, they don't have um, since the accident. That's only mm. through Punch and Watman, but they've got the um, the other two. Yeah. yeah, excellent. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me tonight. It's been great chatting, and talk to you both soon. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Thank you. Thanks again to Jen and to Seth for appearing on the program, and thanks to all of you Patreon subscribers. As usual, check out the show notes for all the details, and you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. If there is a book that you would like to come on and discuss, please get in touch. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.